the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. The wave of carbon compliance acronyms heading towards shipping companies should not be news to listeners of this podcast. EEXI, CII, EU ETS, these should all be familiar terms as the industry prepares for what is going to be a generational shift towards a net zero emissions industry. And yet, the detail of what these acronyms mean in terms of business practice and charter party changes is still not widely understood. Now, that's partly because, at least in the case of the EU's emissions trading system, we still don't know much of the detail, but that doesn't make it any less urgent as a problem. The way in which ship owners and charters negotiate charter party contracts that needs to change, and it needs to change pretty urgently off the back of these regulations, not just in terms of the legal detail, but the overall approach towards transparency and dialogue in the industry. The good news here is that there is a genuine opportunity for a step change in the way that the industry approaches these things. The bad news, of course, is that it is going to be difficult and probably quite expensive as a process of adjustment. So, I've drafted in a lawyer to help. Helen Barden is one of the best in the business. As a senior FD&D specialist at North P&I, she is well aware of the looming problems that need to be overcome. The main topic I wanted her view on was the risks that need to be considered in preparing for an EU emissions trading scheme that has not yet been finalised in the detail that is applicable to shipping. And trust me, there is a lot you need to be worried about here, so please do listen to the end of this one. Free legal advice from an industry-leading expert is well worth 20 minutes of your day, trust me. But I started asking her for a more general view on what we needed to be concerning ourselves with in terms of charter party changes, because although most owners I speak to feel that they're prepared for EEXI and CII, there's a lot of detail there that is likely to result in a slew of legal challenges when things go wrong. Be prepared isn't just a motto for the Boy Scouts, you know. From my perspective as an FD&D lawyer, a lot of the queries that we're having from our members at the moment is how do we deal with these in our charter parties? Um, there are real concerns from owners and charterers when it comes to the CII. Um, obviously, with a time charter, the charterers want to be able to charter the ship in, you know, in the manner that suits them best. Have Traditionally, charterers will have considerable um, flexibility in terms of how they can trade a ship within those sort of charter party parameters. And the concern from charterers' side that because of CII, the owners are going to be saying, no, you can't do this. It's going to result in us breaching our, our CII and getting a, a lower rating than we, than we should be. Um, but from owners' perspective, that on the other side of the coin, they can't possibly achieve CII without the buy-in from charterers. So there needs to be this um, dialogue between owners and charterers to, to agree a sort of contractual framework, um, you know, relevant charter party clauses to, to understand what owners can do when it comes to um, ensuring that the trade of the ship is not going to result in them breaching their um, regulatory obligations. But also from a charterer's side, for them to know that they've got sufficient flexibility still and still an ability to commercially trade the ship. 
so it's it's a fine balance to be drawn and I think it does require this sort of shift in mindset both from the owner's side and from from the charterer's side. The industry has paid a lot of lip service to this idea of transparency and collaboration that is going to be required to decarbonize the industry as a project at a very top level but what you're talking about here is very specific is it's a tangible example of how cooperation between owners and charterers has to change you have to have that dialogue as you say you have to think about it in terms of charter party drafting and therefore we're heading into this era where transparency is required at a contractual level in a way that it just hasn't been considered i mean that changes the nature of the dialogue really doesn't it yes i mean like like i say it 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 does have an impact upon the traditional understanding i suppose of how owners and charterers work um and how charterers will will trade their ships and and the, the rights that they have have to do that and like you say transparency is um going to be absolute key um i think one of you know one of the other concerns on top of the achieving the regulatory requirements is also the amount of data that owners and charterers are going to have to get on top of and understand and also the um the ability for sort of owners and charters to be to reading off the same page if you like in terms of that data they might not have the same systems um and you know you have bigger charterers and bigger owners and smaller owners and smaller charterers and that will very much impact upon the ability of those companies to fully understand the data that's being produced and and fully understand the impact of certain voyage orders on for example CII um so th- this this need for tra- transparency is absolutely um essential and that will go to this need for transparency in relation to data um and data sharing and an understanding you know it it's not just you know you get this data and you file it there's mm. going to be a real need to understand that data as well both from the owners and from the charterers side so that that's another layer that um that also needs to be borne in mind in relation to um these regulations and that's not just for the IMO regs the the um EU ETS as well the the charterers are going to want to um be comfortable that if the liabilities in terms of the uh, allowances that owners are trying to pass down to them under the EU ETS they're going to want to be, to be sure that owners are, are making those calculations correctly and that they're res- liable for the for the correct amount of allowances so and that's all you know fundamentally on on the data that's that's provided well let's let's turn to the EUTS if you don't mind because if CII is complicated then it you know frankly is a, is a minor administrative hiccup compared to the uh, the ETS and 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 some of the um requirements that are coming down the pipeline for ship owners because we don't yet have the details. We we, we yeah. have the the broad scope of the fact that we know that shipping is going to be included in this European cap and trade principle. We know that the cap is going to be reduced over uh, time so that total emissions fall. But we're still in a political process whereby the European Commission, the Council of Ministers, and the Parliament are all agreeing the details of the text. Mm-hmm. So we don't yet have a final, you know, draft that we can look at and say this is what it means. And that's important because just the very definition of what a ship owner is, is not yet clear. And from a charter party agreement, I would presume that is quite difficult. 
Yes, um, and you would presume correct <laughs> on that point. I mean, this this uncertainty for um, for ship owners and charterers for you know for a regulation that you know could be introduced probably not sooner than the end of next year, but still that that's not far away when we still don't know the detail of it, and that does produce a big challenge when it comes to drafting um, the correct clause within a charter party and, and getting both both parties on board. Um, like you say, there's still this um, trilogue discussion that needs to take place between those three um, EU institutions to finalise the detail of the, of the EU ETS. And I think that's expected to take place in September. How long that will take, I'm not sure. But it could be that we have the final form towards the end of this year. I think what's, what is clear is it's, it's going to be something resembling what is, has already been put on the table. We had the, the Commission's proposal in July last year. And since then, um, more recently this year, we've had the Parliament's um, proposed amendments, and then also the, the council's uh, view on on the on the same um, same drafting. So the, the commission and the council seem to be more aligned with each other in terms of how they see the um, EU ETS working. There are points that the parliament have proposed, um, which I think it, it's a more ambitious. Um, a more ambitious proposal, you might like to say, than the commissions and the councils. Um, but points that the Parliament have made and proposed in terms of how the EU ETS should look, whether those get taken on board, um, you know, we, we don't know yet. I think, I mean, and I, I'm asked on a on almost, you know, weekly basis by members, wh when is it starting? Uh, when it, when are we going to need to start worrying about this? Um, and obviously, from a contractual perspective, if you're entering into a long term charter now, really, you need to stop thinking about it. Um, but in terms of it actually starting, I think because the whilst the Commission's proposal had been to start 1st of Jan 23, given where we are, um, I think that is highly unlikely. Mm. The um, Parliament had proposed a start of 1st of Jan 24, which I think is more realistic. Um, the Council have suggested that it would basically start a year from the point at which the directive is finalised. So if the directive is finalised at the end of this year, then it'll start the end of next year. The Commission and the Council seem more aligned in terms of having this phased in approach. So it's not to say that the you know, it's a full hit from the from the start of, of maritime being brought into the ETS, whereas the Parliament has proposed that actually um, 100% of the emissions will will be addressed from um, from the start, so from the 1st of January 2024. So depending on which way it goes, um, it might not be as big of a concern right at the start. Um, but, but yeah, like you say, we don't know yet, so we have to wait and see. But the point here is that there are significant details that do need to be considered because the responsibility of who is dealing with the carbon credits, um, the uh, extension of credit risk from um, the people, you know, on the charters and the owner side dealing most likely with ship managers because, you know, as defined in the, uh, the drafts that we have seen, 
it is the entity that uh, takes responsibility for the ISM certificate, the, uh, the the document of compliance that is going to be the one that is dealing with these carbon credits. Now, more often than not, that means we're talking about ship managers. And let's be honest, ship managers are not really set up to be dealing with fairly complex uh, you know, pieces of admin like this. So we are talking about big step changes in the way that the industry is currently set up in terms of how it will now need to deal with things. So these details are not just minor things to be considered. They are pretty fundamental to how businesses are operating. Yeah, and, and I think in terms of who is going to have ultimate liability under the ETS, um, the likelihood is it's go, probably going to remain um, the document of compliance holder under the ISM code. So like you say, that's usually going to be the ship manager. The um, I think the reason for that is because that is a that entity is an um, an entity that, entity that can be identified much more easily than say the operator of a ship or the charterer. So whilst the um, Parliament's proposal to widen the definition of um, shipping company to include say the time charterer, that doesn't really fundamentally change the fact that it's going to be the um, document of compliance holder under the ISM code. Uh, ISM code. It's it's just that I think it's it's more for aesthetics, in my view, as much as anything. It's it's an example that it could be the time charterer, but in reality, the time charterer is rarely, if ever, going to be the document of compliance holder under the ISM code. So I think the the likelihood is it it will stay with ship managers. And then it's the case of looking at how that is then addressed and, and the, the liability passed down to the correct party under, you know, within the contractual framework. So all, you know, the Commission, the Parliament, the Council all seem to agree on the fact that whilst it might be the um, ship manager who has ultimate responsibility, the the liability should rest with for example the 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 entity who has um responsibility for the speed of the ship the route cargo um choice of fuel which generally we're, we're talking about the charter of, of the ship so the intention seems to be to pass that liability down the charter party chain the the most straightforward which I say straightforward, it would be a more, the most straightforward way if we knew the, the actual detail of the regulation um, would be within, you know, putting a clause in the charter parties. The alternatives have been suggested, for example, um, that the member states should impose a contractual obligation to um, so that the cost is ultimately um, ultimately rests with the commercial operator, or um, then you know it should be imposed at national level that the, the, the where the liability rests. I'm very unclear as to how that would work. Um, to me, it seems quite a difficult thing to achieve, especially when there could be competing agreements with between the parties within a charter party context. So um, from in terms of dealing with how that liability should be passed down, really it, it should be done within the charter party itself as agreed between 
you know, those parties to the contract. Um, BIMCO have produced um, an emission trading scheme allowances clause, and that has been already been published. The one of the points that I'm I should sort of flag, I suppose, in relation to that clause is um, that has been drafted on the basis that there is more freedom in terms of who can uh, purchase allowances, trade allowances um, within the uh, EU ETS framework. The One of the points that the Parliament has taken up is to limit that right so that only entities and regulated entities, so seemingly the ship managers, um, being the document of compliance holder, um, with past, future or existing um, responsibilities under the ETS can actually buy, open a union registry, which would mean they can buy and um, transfer allowances. Okay. So as it stands, the BIMCO clause wouldn't work with that, the framework that the Parliament is proposing. So that's something that is being watched from from the BIMCO side. I was I was on the drafting committee for that clause, um, so so we're very mindful of that and how how it comes out in the wash after the trilogue discussions between the three institutions. Okay. So just in summary, I mean we have a huge amount of risk that needs to be considered coming down the pipeline over the next 18 months, broadly speaking. Um, from your perspective, clearly your clients are all well informed about this and uh, it will be well served by your expert advice. But generally speaking, how would you characterize the industry's readiness to deal with some of these issues that you have raised? I mean, is there enough awareness and expertise within the shipping companies to be able to deal with this or are we looking at a long hot summer for you lawyers being consulted on every minute detail of these changes coming through the pipeline? I think that um, it very much varies from different ship owners. There are some ship owners that are, you know, are very well informed and um, in terms of how they are trying to deal with this internally and getting the different um their different internal teams prepared. There are obviously going to be ship owners and charterers who are less informed. I mean, the, for example, the CII regulations, it's a very complicated regulation um, to get your head around in the first place. And, you know, we haven't, we've only recently had some of the guidelines in relation to CII. So to, to some extent, it's quite difficult for anybody to feel fully prepared at this point because the, there is still this um, need to read what's coming out um, get you know understand how that's going to impact your trades I mean I, some some of our members that I've spoken to are considering changing the the way in which they might charter for example suggesting things like actually we we might be looking at longer term charter parties um, so that we can have this more collaborative um, working relationship with charterers. So there are there is a there is a readiness um, certainly with some of our with some owners and some charterers. I wouldn't be surprised at all if um, 
there are owners and charters who feel um, that they're not ready and it's not surprising like I say there's with the ETS regs we, we don't know the detail yet um, we, we're only just really um, getting a lot of the the, the sort of finalised guidelines in relation to CII. Um, the EXI, as I mentioned earlier on, is a much more straightforward um, regulation to deal with. I think generally my understanding is that um, ship owners feel more comfortable with where they are with EXI and what needs to be done with EXI. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it, and I think there's there's going to be a learning curve even once the regulations kick in. Um, so it's not just a case of being being able to understand how everything's going to work now. Certainly with CII, there is going to be, a, a, you know, it's a huge learning curve really once, once those regulations um, do come in. And I think in terms of, for example, like I said earlier, understanding how a charter's orders might impact a CII rating, um, it's going to be there's going to be sort of evidential, real evidential issues as well, which I'm sure will end up in potential disputes down the line. I don't think there's any way of avoiding that really. Um, so there is a need to definitely um, from owners and charterers to make sure that they are looking at their charter party terms, are looking at um, charters who they intend to fix with, having relevant discussions with um, with their charters. I think the onus really is going to be more on the owners than the charterers side to sort of kickstart these discussions because really the, the ultimate liability is with them under these regulations. So I think owners can't really expect charters to be coming to them. I think it has to be um, more likely the other way around. Um, but but these conversations do need to be happening and reviews of charter party terms and trying to understand what you can at the moment in terms of these uh, regulations is absolutely essential. And there we will leave it for another week. My thanks to Helen Barden for her expert insights this week. We will be back again next week with more insights into the opportunities and risks surrounding shipping. But for now, thank you for listening and have a good week. Mm-hmm.